All episodes of the Garage Build podcast are recorded live in the Law Fran studios. The law offices of Fran Hosh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Call 1-866-LAW-FRAN or go to lawfran.com. The law offices of Fran Hosh, serving the Tampa Bay biker community for over 20 years. Welcome back to the Garage Bill Podcast. I am your gracious host, Mr. Jason Hallman. Hey, this is the fourth in a series of four of the High Seas Rally Podcasts. And today my guest is Mr. Keith Terry from Terry Components. Very, very, very wise, wise man. And I learned a lot of cool stuff. You're going to be very surprised when you hear about the arc of his career. Hey, this episode of the Garage Wheel Podcast is brought to you by SNS Cycles. Since 1958, SNS has led the V Twin aftermarket from innovative new ways to get air and fuel into your performance twin to big bore kits for all big twins, sportsters, and M8s to today's must have exhaust components. Choose SNS Cycles for your next performance upgrade. Visit sscycle.com and follow SNS Cycles on social media at SS Cycle. Team Dream Rides in Maryville, Tennessee is located only minutes from the tail of the dragon. Team Dream Rides specializes in performance engine upgrades, used bike sales, service maintenance, and repair. Visit TeamDreamRides.com or follow at DreamRidesTennessee on Instagram to keep up with all the latest news from the Jessup family. The High Seas Rally 2023 sets sail next November from Tampa, Florida. It is the only motorcycle rally on a cruise ship. Join me and all my friends as we sail the high seas for a seven-day cruise. Follow at High Seas Rally on Instagram to find out all the latest information. 1620 Workwear is premium made in the USA workwear, guaranteed for life. Visit www.1620usa.com and use the discount code SPEED2022 and you're going to save 20% at checkout. Make sure you're following 1620 at 1620USA on Instagram. Go out there and cop one of their new work hoodies. Those things are awesome. I've got a couple of them. They've got a new one that zips all the way up the front so you're not pulling it all the way over your head. These things are designed to move with you, not against you. Their shop pant is one of the nicest pants I have, and they've got several different models out there. Lots of new stuff coming from 1620 Workwear. This episode was recorded live on the High Seas Rally a couple weeks ago. You'd be very surprised to hear about Mr. Keith Terry. Enjoy. You're listening to the Garage Bill Podcast with your host, Jason Coleman. Mr. Terry, I appreciate you doing this with me. No problem. Pulling you away from your vacation time to uh, to sit and talk about motorcycles. But you're going to be talking about motorcycles pretty much your whole vacation, I would imagine, anyways. With almost everybody here. Right. <laughs> Let me go ahead and crank this up a little bit there. Um, so you're the proprietor uh, of Terry Components, and a lot of us in the industry rely on you for high-quality starters, but you have a lot of other products. What does your uh, your company, obviously the starters are the, most, are the biggest name, but what are the, some of the other products that you guys do that maybe people don't know as much about? Well, we, we came up with a complete line of uh, high-grade, uh, uh, battery cables to go along with the starter motors. Not always is the problem the starter motor. You get, you, the 
more compression and everything else you put into your motor, the cams and everything, everything you can do to make that easier to start. So what I do is I, I put together a starting system. It's not just a starter motor, it's a battery, the cables, like a bit, uh, um, you know, uh, a video, you have to have the cables, have to match the speakers, you know, and everything else. So I think that's something that people don't really even think about. Yeah. I had somebody tell me one time, um, it was the guy from Karata Belt Drives. Yeah. He told me, he says, listen, you know, be very cognizant of the starter motor and the KV and really be aware of the fact that if your engine's like impossible to start, it might be the engine, but all the other pieces and components in, in, or components in that really add up to. Yeah, the, Har the nature of a guy that has a Harley Davidson is they're gonna make changes on their motorcycle. They're not gonna leave it alone. They're gonna wanna upgrade it, so they're gonna want it to go faster. They're gonna change the cam, uh, change all kinds of parts carburation, fuel injection, they're going to upgrade it. And then all they're really doing is walking themselves right into a starting issue. The bigger they want to make that motor and they use the stock starter, it isn't going to start. It will for a while. Sure. But it's going to uh, start laboring. Um, the, more, the harder it is to turn that motor over, it's going to use up that starter faster. So that's where we come in with the higher torque starters. They start out, Harley-Davidson had a, a 1.2 kilowatt starter motor on every one of their motorcycles. We, back 20 some years ago, came out with a 1.4, same starter, but a little bit bigger armature, a little bit bigger fields, uh, longer fields, and uh, it could handle that high, a little more, uh, of the a bigger motor to start it. And then we kept getting bigger. So 1.6, 1.8, 2.0. We just kept getting bigger and so did the motors. Right, yeah, there was, uh, I mean, I think right now the biggest Evo motor that's out there is like a 143 and you have the 124 twin cam. And then now these M8s yeah. are, I mean, I've seen them over 150 cubic inches. And, and but today the world's changed and they put uh, compression releases uh, from the factory they help that that is a problem the starting right. of the motor so uh, they have some help along the way and uh, you know as time goes on it just they do everything better before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of like the Terry components uh, starters and that and what really drives them tell me about how your company came about because you have um, if you go back uh, 50 years you were a professional baseball player and then so there's there's kind of this this um, evolution of your career what you you know at some point in time you you, you hang up the glove and, uh, and, yeah. and and how do you get into how do you get into the motorcycle scene well you know coming out of high school I signed to the Boston Red Sox and I that was what I wanted to do is play baseball and so sports was a big deal for me. And so uh, I just jumped over college, went right straight to uh, pro ball and uh, did the best I could. I had a series of injuries in the five years and it, it, uh, it ended my career. Sure. I just couldn't. Uh, so now uh, I come back to Los Angeles uh, with no education 
no money, no, you know, I'm not, um, what do I do? Right. So I went, uh, I decided to go down to the wrecking yards and buy some ugly, greasy, worn out carburetors and stuff. And I brought them back to my dad's uh, backyard. He had a little shop. So I started tearing these carburetors apart and cleaning them up and uh, import carburetors. I didn't do the domestic stuff, so I uh, focused on the imports, Toyotas, Volkswagen. And this Volkswagen. is in the 70s, the, the, mid, to, mid, to the mid to late 70s? Yeah, 1972. Okay. And so I went down to the auto parts store and showed them what I had and they bought what I had and they had a few ugly ones in the back also and gave them to me. Go take these home and fix them up, bring them back. And I did, and I just kept doing that. And within 16 years, I had 140 employees uh, supplying Pep Boys and Napa and uh, all the big um, uh, uh, car places. And um, next thing I know, uh, a big limousine pulled up and Five guys got out of it. One person I knew, uh, kind of a mentor to me, and he just told me, look, um, just let these guys see whatever they want to see. And I go, really? And yes, just let them look at, show them whatever they want. I didn't know that I had the president of Magneti Morelli, the president of Weber Carburetor, uh, Fiat, the president of Fiat USA, was in that car. And when I called the next day to ask my friend, what was that all about? He says, well, you just sold your company. And I, so I'm going, really? I, he goes, yeah, you just sold your company to Fiat. So uh, you they're going to make you a deal that you can't refuse. Nice. And all these people in the car were from Italy, and I didn't know. Yeah, there's a communication barrier, obviously. had no idea. I just listened to my friend, and I believed in him. And um, it. so they bought my company. I went to work for uh, Fiat, which put me in the uh, Magneti and Morelli division, which I'm sitting right in the middle of the board, watching Harley-Davidson negotiate to for fuel injection. So in the <laughs> so for people that are that you know I talk about this stuff a lot about the the evolution of fuel injection and um, I really want to drill down with this we with you now because Magneti Morelli I've heard people say the comment and, and I want to know what you think that it is an arguably superior system to the Delphi it's just extremely problematic. Well the reason for that is that uh, you have the uh, Italians that know everything and you have Harley-Davidson that's not going to give it up either. They know everything. Right. And these two got, people are, one's telling them you need to go to a closed loop fuel injection system and Harley-Davidson's saying, I'm going to get away with this as long as I can to not have to have O2 sensors right. and all the proper ways to have fuel injection to work properly. They're not going to work 
if you don't listen to the sensors telling the brain what to do. So uh, if you look at Fiat that just happened to own uh, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati, Alfa, Alfa, Romeo, right. Alfa yeah. uh, Lancia, uh, all these uh, uh, exotic race cars that turned 16,000 RPM, it was like a walk in the park to try to figure out how to do a Harley-Davidson. Yeah, I always wondered why they, I feel like they've miss or under-engineered things, because I come from the automobile world, yeah. and from the proto prototype automotive, automotive world, I, I grew up in Detroit, and so I worked for some tier one suppliers, sure. and so we were putting, we were retrofitting um, Delphi-style yeah. systems onto other other different vehicles, right. and then when I got into motorcycles, I'm like, wait a minute, there's no mass airflow sensor, so these are all no. speed density, and they're like, well, you can't put a mass airflow sensor on a motorcycle because you'd have to mount it so far away, and there's turbulence and that. Can you explain about, like, I feel like Harley today is 20 years behind the automotive world when it comes just the fuel injection And they system. are, and they are, because, um, the automotive industry went to fuel injection back in the 70s. They did, yeah. And uh, they figured it out. And, uh, uh, and pro part of that is because of Fiat. Fiat actually is the largest automotive. You know, they're huge. Right. Um, Del the Delphi system was a better system, but the Delphi system was a closed-loop system. It had O2 sensors. So, Fuel injection is no different than the human body. We we just we have senses, right, to rely on. You, you know, whether you have the sense of taste or the sense of touch or the sense of sense you uh, of sight of hearing, you take any of that away, and you're all messed up. You don't have all the sensors on your fuel injection system. It's not going to work right. That is the best analogy I've ever heard of anybody to articulate. I'm watching my brother-in-law nod his head. He was a designer at General or at Ford Motor Company for 32 years, so that makes all of the sense in the world to me now because I've just racked my brain for the last, you know, 19 years that I've been in this industry, coming from the prototype automotive world and going like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, are there? There has to be quality engineering and quality information. So it's just amazing to hear that. So back to the the thing about the Magneti Morelli. That system was uh, in play on Harley-Davidson's from 1995 and some models all the way up to 2000, early 2001, yeah. and then they made it. They made a mid-year switch in 2001, right. if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. Well, you, ha you have to understand that, that Weber carburetors were a dual-throat carburetor, and they treated each cylinder as an independent motor. They didn't have common plenums. It was an individual runner. So each barrel would feed each cylinder independently. It One didn't know about the other. So you had to get this one running right, and this one on Harley-Davidson, uh, for example, uh, the front cylinder is gonna run a little different, hotter, colder than the rear cylinder. Sure. So you have to, it, you have to tune it a little different and that's the way fuel injection was. They're, they're, by using an open loop system and trying to get each cylinder to t get tuned right, it was just a way difficult uh, problem. Uh, so system. they literally de-engineered things. You Harley-Davidson wouldn't listen to 
you're not the first person that's told me that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be kind. No, no, it's fine. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not bashful, but I'm also not. I mean, we all love Harley Davidson motorcycles. That's kind of the foundation, especially of, of, of everybody on this ship at this at this point. But I do feel like there is a huge um, information gap that where it's, it's like a fuel filter and everything gets caught in it. And the only thing that comes out is, the, is what they want. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I've accused Harley of being a T-shirt company that sells unfinished motorcycles my entire okay. career. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting to hear somebody who is in the know on that. I was sitting in the board listening to both of them. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I was just a guy out of Los Angeles <laughs> right. that kind of just figured this out on their own. And then I'm listening to the Giants argue about how to do it. Well, you're coming at it from a problem-solving standpoint, and you're sitting at the table with the guys who are trying to create new problems instead of create new yeah. solutions, right? Yeah, well, kind of. Well, even Magneti Morelli, they used the fuel pump in the gas tank, That was that, and they still, I think, do. Yeah, they do. Uh, they, you know, everything would have worked out right if they'd have went to a closed-loop system right from the get-go. And now all the emissions and everything forced everything to go to a closed-loop system. And it's... But because fuel injection was such a mystery, nobody really knew why it should go that way. So they didn't. So you sell your company and you're essentially unemployed. I mean, for all, for a lack of a better term, I'm, I'm sure Mrs. Right. Terry would probably have said, I need you out of the house. You've got to go do something. What, what are we going to do now? And all so, that came up. So you know, how does Terry Components uh, fit well, in? Well, right out of selling the company, I opened a uh, consulting company. Okay. And all of my competition hired me to go to work for them. So they had these problems and they hired me to solve that. And, uh, so one thing that of my contract, when they paid me, um, I couldn't go back into automotive, but I could go into motorcycles. So I made the switch and that was my love anyway. So, um, I, I just started a company, Terry Components. It was Terry Distributors prior to that in automotive. And I started, uh, uh, building uh, carburetors and fuel injection systems uh, for Harley-Davidson, but I always did the starters. That was what, where the automotive came from. So the next thing I know, I'm building these parts for Harley-Davidson, just grew. You know, at the beginning it was brand new. I, I went to all the Cincinnati and everything else with my briefcase, and I had four or five battery cables in it and walked to, from booth to booth like all of us have done. Right. And next thing you know, it's, I, you know, Terry Components started, so. I miss the days of the, I was talking with somebody earlier today, I miss the days of the drag shows and the- Oh, sure. And the, you know, and I know drag does MVP, but it's their show, right? And so uh -huh. the Cincinnati show and the Indianapolis show was, was kind of a little bit of everybody. And oh, yeah. even, you know, even the guys in the shops, like myself and my dad, we could go there and we could meet people like you because the internet didn't exist in the way that it exists now, you know, where you can have a lot of friends that live in a lot of different places and a lot of business associates that live in a lot of different places. You can do business with them, but mm -hmm. man, when you break bread with somebody, that's where you create the kind of substantive relationships that you have with all, all of the the other people in the industry that you know. Tom Lotsko was the uh, uh, product guy for drag specialties. And at Cincinnati, uh, him and I went over to the hotel in the bar 
and talked about battery cables. That was a big item that went along with the uh, starting system. And Tom Motsko wrote me a, a, an order in the bar on a napkin to go back and start building battery cables. That was 26 years ago. That's awesome. There's so many people who have that story where either Tom Motsko, who's still oh, yeah. there at Drag, um, he's been there longer than, than... I interviewed him a few months ago <laughs> before Sturgis, and uh, since then we've become we've become friends. And it's he's been there longer than the CEO and the owner today, Fred Fox. That's and I was like, how weird was that to have to take him and show him where his office was, where here's where the bathroom is, here's where the cafeteria and that kind of stuff is, you know? Tom Mosco is he's the vendor representative. He goes out and he makes sure everybody is doing what they're supposed to do and what can they can drag specialty do do to help them. Right. And uh, but he happened to be my buyer. For right. 26 years. So uh, when I moved out of Los Angeles and moved to Spearfish, South Dakota 19 years ago, uh, we bought a house just five or six houses up from where Tom was. And so we talked wide out, uh, you know, all the time, and I was able to, any problems that I might have, he helped me solve them. Uh, drag was a huge. Uh, company that helped Terry components along as they did everybody else yeah every, everybody and, and then you have a few you, you have people that fall off um, they either they cycle out they're not they're not producing product anymore and that um, so Terry components starts out you're 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 selling um, what are uh, purpose-built items uh, break uh, the battery cables obviously in certain lengths with certain terminals and yeah. all those things and you're doing all this with with no EE degree, no ME degree. Oh, this I didn't is just have anything. With, this is just experience, right? This I is was just trying to figure out how to get Reggie out, and you know, high and tight, low and away, and as hard as I could throw. <laughs> now, now, now I'm in a whole other situation. But what I did, and made, I think it worked out for me, is I just um, actually Donnie Smith said to me, "You're." Starting systems will never be right without a good set of battery cables. Right. So I went to, in Thousand Oaks, California, they were building a hospital, and I went to the hospital and I started talking to the people that were building it and asked them, you know, if, if you have a power outage or something like that, what kind of cables are you using to that are a thousand feet away for battery backups and generators or whatever you get? You know, some guy's relying on this. And they, oh, well, here's the stuff. So they showed it to me and I found out where they uh, bought it. And so a, a, a all battery cables, automotive or Harleys or whatever, four gauge cable, it has about 180 strands of copper wire in a four-gauge jacket. Okay. My cables had 1,666 strands of wire in the same four-gauge uh, jacket, which means that they were little hair-fine strands that made it real flexible. You could route it any way you wanted. But the big deal was it, didn't ha it had zero uh, uh, voltage drop. So every bit of power your battery had, it went to the starter. 
to try to start that bike and it just helped the whole system. The life of the battery, the life of the starter, everything. So when you leave the automotive industry and you start getting into the, the motorcycle industry after your consulting business starts and you're building battery cables and you now you have a new company, you have a new distribution right. center, um, where does the innovation start where you start going, well, I'm going to make starters now and I'm going to make, you had a terminal velocity it, it, EFI thing. So. It was easy for me on the starters because I didn't, um, at the beginning, I never really looked. But all of this made in America stuff, mm -hmm. they use a, a Nippon Denso starter motor. Right. Which so, is Japanese. Which is Japanese. So I had built 10 million of those starters in the automotive side of it. When I looked at it, I go, well, that's just a Nippon Denso starter. If, they, if that's the starter that Harley picked, why didn't they go to a, a higher uh, kilowatt Kill. starter, which I knew all about? So it was just easy for me. And then being with Weber, the fuel injection, I had the best minds in the world. I just made a few phone calls and it was, and here we go, you know? And so, you know, I've done the same thing with our, uh, the trikes. You know, a guy comes over to my shop with a trike and says my, it won't go backwards. You're talking about the new revert, the, yeah. the tri-glide with the electric reverse right. motor, right? Yeah, which are which are prone to being problematic in, in going out and quitting. And all it is is a starter motor. Right. So I looked at it, you know, I said, I don't, I don't really know. I never looked at it before. So I pulled it out of his bike and I realized it had a Hitachi starter motor was part of the system, so I, knew what it was, so I, I'm buying starters all the time, Nippon Denzels, but I bought this Hitachi, the starter that it was, and I took it apart, because what goes bad is the field housing, it's a permanent magnet, yep. so they go bad, and the armature could, uh, the commentator could explode because, you know, the, everybody, with, all these guys with trikes, they take it in the convenience store and they would, uh, be a downhill thing and they try to back it back out and the next thing you know it, it's blow it's putting too much amperage to the to that little starter so I got that starter motor and I put I realized that I what I had to do is re-clock the field housing to reverse it so I you know push pull magnet yeah yeah so i just went halfway with it it went the other way and i cut uh notches in the housing so you can't put it backwards a small one and a big one right so you had to put it the same way and i put it all brand new parts and we have our we have a kit that you can buy where it's about eighteen hundred dollars for a reverse motor at Harley Davidson, and mine was four hundred dollars. So. You got him beat by you got him beat by that by a mile. The only one that has one, so we just you know they're just we're do we're doing well with them. Good. Um, so your facility is no longer you're you're no longer based in Los Angeles personally. Oh, you're no, based in Spearfish. Is your whole operation in uh, in South Dakota now? Yeah, we brought everything to South. I was born and raised in L.A. I love L.A. Sure. 
you know, I'm a Dodger fan. Uh, I, <laughs> that had to be a I tough wanted one. to be a Dodger. I really you're right, did. You're, you're at the right age point, too, where that would have been a very, very conflicting I thing. I, my dad took me to the L.A. Coliseum, and I got to watch the Dodgers play. And when I saw those white uniforms and the blue Dodgers, I was done. Now, I'm gonna, I'm, I want to play here. And that was what drove me my whole life. And, right. Uh, when I got a call from the Red Sox, <laughs> I, uh, the Red Sox, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign to the Red Sox. Yeah. And so I was very lucky on that. But, um, you know, I forget what we were talking about. We were talking about moving to Spearfish. You said you were born and raised in L.A. Yeah, to leave L.A. was hard for me. I didn't, never thought I ever would. All the time I was playing ball or anything else, I'd always go back to L.A. Um, but L.A. isn't the way it was when I grew up. So um, I decided to make that change. And we packed up everything, sold our house, sold everything, and uh, moved to Spearfish, South Dakota. Bought a building. Just put dairy components in it again. And uh, it's been there for 19 years. And... Um, um, as it turns out, uh, and I'm 74 years old, uh, I look at it as though I'm in the fourth quarter. So I kind of <laughs> rethink my program. I sold Terry Components just a month ago. Did you? Yeah. Congratulations so, on your well, retirement. <laughs> Are they letting well, you retire? Do you that's have to why go there I'm every here. <laughs> I wasn't able to come to these before. So right. No, I'm, um, the new people I uh, that have bought it from me, approached me about a year ago, and I told them um, I really won't sell it because I have my name on it unless you come to work for me. And so they've worked for me for a year. And so I believe everything is, uh, well, nothing will change. Sure. Yeah, the name will still be the same on the door, but the product coming out the back door into the distribution. And I had be Tom Lotzko come over, and he looked at everything and met the people that were interested in buying it, and it all happened about a month ago. It's funny to me that Sturgis seems to be, for the industry, um, the people that are the industry builders, the people like yourself, the entrepreneurs that that made this industry what it is today. Uh, you know, Legend Suspension is yeah. based there. Now Terry Components is based there. You hear this, everybody, it's almost like it's becoming this new mecca for the motorcycle oh, yeah. industry. And Spearfish seems to have just put their arms around yeah. everybody. And I think that has a lot to do with that shirt that you're wearing. Um, you know, I've been working or been, you know, trying to, make my way into that group since 2016 yeah. and uh, I was able to go before the board in 2021 and I, that was the first time I got to sit into that in that room with 700 other people and just be absolutely humbled by the fact that we walk into this room and there's art all over the place and everybody's kind of commingling and and laughing and having a good time with zero dollars on the board and then you walk out two and a half, three hours later, and there's almost $600,000 raised for Lifescape and Meals on Wheels. And it was just, it was the most humbling, it's the closest thing to a, like a re real religious epiphany that I've ever had. And it made me want to be part of that group even more because of the benevolence that's there. You, al you almost have to see it to believe it. Yeah. Because, you, uh, you know, 
Now I'm working on my 28th year of being a hamster. And uh, I'm very proud of that, along with a lot of other things in life. But, sure. Um, so our group is uh, unique to any other group out there. The uh, people, the camaraderie that we all have together is, uh, is just a, uh, uh, something that we all uh, look forward to, uh, seeing our uh, hamster brothers uh, we may have just seen them three months ago, but it's all brand new again to see them all over again. And what we do um, for LifeScape, for children that have special needs, um, we are able to help out. And uh, uh, that, that's just what kind of what it's very unique if you sit there and watch it, because all those things that you saw that are auctioned off, a lot of them are made by the hamster, individual hamsters. Yeah. And then they donate them to the auction and then turn right back around and, and they're the very same people that buy them back. And I think that's why I, I want to draw the attention to that is because I think there is a miscommunication or, you know, people, if you don't know, you make these assumptions, right? Yeah. You see somebody walk by or you see somebody having a bad day and you assume that maybe they're not a nice person when you just happen to catch them on having a bad day. Yeah. And we all have bad days. But to, to know that, that that region of the country that is so rich with history and tradition and, and other ways shapes and forms i mean you're talking about an area of the country that has almost no professional sports teams that's right right um so they rely heavily on, on collegiate stuff and yeah. they're very very um you know when you get out to that side of the country i try to explain to people that don't travel that we don't have a whole lot to worry about because there's so many great people in the middle of this country yeah. Oh, that, yeah. that don't that that we don't know exist when you live on a coast you know it's a small town a small a, you know south dakota i had more people in my high school than the whole state you know? <laughs> right. so, so i mean there but it's wide open there's you know there's uh the black hills though the black hills are as as is as beautiful and as nice as anywhere out there Coming from a Californian, you know, we had Yosemite and Lake Tahoe and all the beautiful, beautiful places, the redwoods and sure. you know, there were places to go. But but it doesn't have anything on the Black Hills. If you really go out there and especially on a motorcycle, the back roads of the Black Hills of South Dakota, you just can't hardly beat that. And it's a treat. To, that's why people come there every year and then of course, in the last 19 years, I got to live there. So. That's awesome. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Sturgis Motorcycle Hall of Fame. We yeah. mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I know you have a pretty intimate relationship with that. You're a local now. You've been there for 19 years, yeah. uh, so you, you're part of you're part of that. And that is, uh, I assume, was created obviously to symbolize and immortalize some of the people that have passed on that have really contributed greatly to that. People like Arlen Ness yeah. and. Uh, in some of the others. What can you tell me about uh, the motorcycle uh, museum that's there in Sturgis in the Hall of Fame? Well, the museum, there's two phases to it, the museum and then the Hall of Fame. So uh, downtown, uh, Maine and Junction, uh, we ha the museum is there. We have about 100 motorcycles in there. What makes the museum unique to maybe all other uh, museums is we we try to show all phases of motorcycling, not just 
uh, the racing division. We do the antique bikes, custom bikes, and um, military bikes all years, and it's all. It's it's really something that if you haven't been there, you really need to go see it. And is that museum a living museum where it, there are motorcycles that are cycled in and out, or is it a collection that is that is static? No, we uh, the, um, we have a curation committee, which I uh, uh, chaired. Um, that uh, goes goes through. And we we have contracts that we have maybe a two year contract with somebody that their bike will be in the museum and it'll be moved from one side to the other. So, like, you know, uh, all motorcycle companies do. Sure. And but it's no more than two years, and um, we um, rotate the inventory and bring in new stuff all the time. So. Um, it's a nice place to go and and then the Hall of Fame part of it we have a breakfast on Wednesday of the rally and um, we are what we do is we bring in maybe eight different individuals I was lucky enough to be chose to be brought in along with Paul Yaffe uh, the same year in 2014 and after that, they asked me to be on the board. So currently, I'm the vice president of the museum, and I chair the Hall of Fame. So we have a committee, and uh, what we do is we try to look out into our industry and try to figure out who isn't in the Hall of Fame and is deserving, and we have different ways of, of uh, coming up with who we pick. One of them is you can go on the internet and get the form, uh, an induction form. You can fill it out. Let's say if you, you felt strongly that somebody has been overlooked or whatever, you can turn their name in, and now they're, they'll, I call it their name goes in the hat. Right. And, and now it'll be considered, uh, along with our committee that, that uh, is made up of some individuals that all know the industry and we try to pick uh, people that are deserving. You gotta be, you know, you gotta be in the all-star bracket. You sure. can't just be somebody that loves a motorcycle and you gotta have, like Ar you mentioned Arlen Ness. Sure. Uh, he got the very first Lifetime Achievement Award because he was so deserving. He did so much for everybody. So did Fred Fox of uh, uh, Drag Specialties and uh, Willie G. Davidson. Um, uh, there's so many, Mike Corbin, I can't think of them all, Don Hota. Sure. You start thinking of all the names, uh, Don MD. Um, these guys are the best of the best. So you have to be a Hall of Famer to make the Lifetime Achievement Award, and you have to have done something consider you know, considerably right at the, uh, out in the industry. Um, and if you are lucky, you get, because we only get to bring in five people into the Hall of Fame. We have specialty items, Freedom Fighter, people that fight for our rights. Yep. The Lifetime Achievement Award, which you already have to be a Hall of Famer. And then we have what we call kickstands down 
and that is uh, the posthumous. Post posthumous, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I mean, there's certainly people that um, that leave a little sooner than what we would like for them to yeah. leave, and uh, but they've left a mark behind you. Don Hotop is a good example of somebody that I know he was in the Hall of Fame already, but um, yeah. you know he he left us you know kind of suddenly and so many. You know, uh, Jesse Combs was the first uh, kickstands down, was killed on a motorcycle, and and then uh, Ben Hardy. Um, was who we picked last year to uh, represent the kickstands down. You know, he, he um, was a person that probably most motorcyclists never heard of. Yeah, he was the guy that um, that designed and built the original Easy Rider bikes. And aside from that, he was, I mean, he was a, a, a very, very well versed in in his community of, of building motorcycles and a true when, motorcycle when, guy. When the movie industry came. To have a movie, Easy, Easy Rider, which everybody's seen. Sure. Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. Now, the Billy bike in Captain America was built by Ben Hardy. Yeah. And um, that's who they picked to build the bike, the two most iconic motorcycles in motorcycle, in motorcycle history. 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 Set the direction of uh, choppers and everything else for the rest of us to follow. Yeah, yeah how brilliant was that? That um, you know, you have like the chopper, which is the long bike, and you have the the bike yeah. that's considered the bobber, right? That's still a chopper to some degree. But he had the forethought to see to build. Two see, bikes. the Billy bike was really a, basically. You know, Ben Hardy just worked by himself. He he did uh, in a, a South Central Los Angeles. Um, that was his everyday style bike. So guys would come to him and want to want a custom motorcycle. They got something in the range of the Billy bike. The Captain America was a whole unique motorcycle that he put together uh, for that movie, and. Um, so that was why there was, uh, you know, that's my understanding. Of course, I, how do I know about it? I talk to Sugar Bear all the time, and that's yeah. how I find out about it. He's ba is he based in, in Spearfish now? Or he, I know he has his no, own he, he has he's his own in Sturgis. Together, right? he's okay. a, he has property in Sturgis, and of course, he, st uh, he still has his house in uh, Los Angeles. I think uh, not in Los Angeles, but in California. He, he turned 80 or 81? 80, 83, I think. My goodness. Yeah. He looks so oh, young great. and so healthy. I think he said something this year. Somebody told me that he's like, uh, he was tired. <laughs> um, well, we're all tired right? as we get older. But no, I mean, uh, Sugar Bear is uh, one of the icons. He's he's a uh, legend in his own right. Uh, there, there, there couldn't be a better person, uh, an individual to represent uh, our industry. Uh, he was a friend of Ben Hardy's. Um, he's a friend of all of ours, and uh, I'm very proud to be his friend. Yeah, and he builds an amazing front end. I, uh, a friend of mine, Eric Gorgeous from Voodoo Choppers, uh, was I was working with him in 2006, and he built a bike that had a Sugar Bear Springer on it. Yeah. It was a real, it was a long and tall bike. He's like, no, no, take it for a ride. He goes, you'll be amazed at how you could do. A, you could, I could 
ride it in a circle in a parking spot. I yeah. mean, it was a big, long bike because of the with the power steering and the angle and all this stuff. It's a wonderful ride. Well, he ride figured out end. the rake and trail for a front end that was that you know how it had to work. The geometry he put together in his front ends, which I believe are unique to any other front end. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of your, uh, you know, you said that uh, when you started your company and that, you, how'd you get into riding? When did you start riding motorcycles? And more well, specifically, when did you get into the Harley scene? The di first, when I, my brother had a motorcycle, my older brother had a motorcycle, so I'm riding around on the back of my brother's Honda 50. That's all we could afford and he could afford. And, you know, I mean, motorcycles was, uh, that was just going to be part of our of our life, and so the day that I turned 15 and a half, which you get a learner's permit, and you can ride a motorcycle, I went down to uh, Bud Eakins in Van Nuys, and I bought a three a brand new 305 Superhawk. I was folding papers for the L.A. Times, so I made I think forty dollars a month and. That was what my payment was. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Typical Harley owner. You start out right at the right at the base of where you right. you, you have no more money if you for That's fuel. That's <laughs> it. I put it all in the motorcycle. But I, I mean, I rode it to school. I rode it to uh, a, a funeral, wedding, whatever I did. That's how I got there. And so I I I was into motorcycles. And I'm being in Los Angeles, I. You know, we got to uh, go to the L.A. Coliseum and see the first Supercross race in the Coliseum. And uh, when I saw Marty Tripes do so well against the Europeans, uh, I went back to Bud Eakins and I, Honda, mm -hmm. and I bought uh, a, three, uh, a, uh, a 250 Elsinore. Nice. And uh, so I, 73, I think. and. So I had a dirt bike. Today I have I'm restoring my 440 uh, Mako. Nice. And uh, and that's a lot of motorcycle, especially for back then. Oh yeah, you know. So I still have the, I still single, have that bike. Single single pot. Yeah, it's a, a, a single cylinder, uh, and and I still have my 490 uh, YZ. Uh, 82 I think it is I kept them still have them so what about street bike stuff and Harley stuff what did what are some of your well what are some of the bikes you you have there that you know I I was able to um, you know I bought a soft tail and uh, it, I rode that for a long time tore it all apart cut the frame in half did typical hamster stuff and uh, uh, that was a bike. It was in Easy Riders, I think. For I repainted it. You know, it was orange. It was black. It was red, and uh, it was it went out in mostly all the mo uh, magazines. And then I just started. Every about two years, I would build uh, another motorcycle and put my parts on it. Right and I was able to ride it, so. Yeah, there was a point in time where that was like the only way you advertised your business. You could advertise in the motorcycle magazines, but building a motorcycle really showed everybody, yeah. you know, what you were made of and, and kind of, you were able to develop an audience around that. Well, you know, and for me, you know, now it's, we've been doing this a while and, 
uh, Rod Woodruff of the Buffalo Chip came to me and asked me if I would get help him and get involved with a building a motorcycle program. Uh, and I said, okay, but I would do it if we could have the high school kids get involved with it. So we started a class with the high school kids because our school system has failed our, our kids. They've taken, they've taken away the industrial arts programs. And now what do these kids do? They, they graduate from high school and they can't read a tape measure. So um, we thought that this made sense. So we started building, uh, we would take a motorcycle and use the motorcycle as a, uh, a visual aid that we could tear it apart, we yeah. could, uh, cut it in half, we could uh, change the fenders, do all kinds of things, and let these kids uh, learn how students yeah, uh, learn how tools work. Learn how you know how motorcycles work. Learn how internal combustion engines. We ended up doing that. And then we would take the motorcycle up to the Donnie Smith show and enter it in against all the you know the pros and stuff. And so for five years straight, we would. But it was easy for me because I could call Arlen Ness, I could call Nick Trash, I could call Paul Yaffe, I could call. I knew them all. They're all my friends, and they'll send me parts. So I've got the latest parts and mentoring these young students. Randy Kramer of uh, 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 V-Twin, uh, Dakota V-Twin in, in Spearfish, he was the instructor and I got the parts. Nice. And so we put these bikes together and they were as good as any bike out there. But these high school kids had never even been out of town. So Woodruff would, Rod would uh, uh, get a, uh, a bus and we'd take these kids up to Minneapolis and get them rooms and uh, and then we had them run the booth. How am what an amazing um, experience for them. Oh, it was a big deal. And then what we would do is we would auction the motorcycle off and take the money and give it back to the very kids that helped build it for scholarship money and they, uh, we'd put them through college. Nice. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I was in the class of, of, of people. I graduated high school in 91, so I've had this conversation with a lot of people that they kind of started telling us around that time that we absolutely had to have a degree, and that if we got a degree, we would never be unemployed. And that's not always been true. No. Um, my, some of my friends that make the most amount of money, that are happiest, and that have the most amount of opportunity are the people that work with their hands and learned how to think with their with their minds too, you know. And there's there's nothing wrong with getting a, a traditional education, but there is something wrong with telling somebody that that's the only way that they. Yeah, that's make just it. all wrong. You know, yeah. the entrepreneurial spirit is out there, um, and it's not for everybody. But if you can come up with a need and fill it. You could do as well as anybody out there that has the education, and I was one of them. I was going to say, you're a good case study for that, because one of the things I like to ask people when you're developing a new product, um, do you come from a problem-solving side or from a, just a raw engineering side? And I think they're very different, but they use a lot of the same skills. And everything that you've told me is you're, you're very much at the problem solving. When you started your first carburetor business, yeah. you were solving a problem. You were going and finding broken parts, repairing them, and making them better. And then now even with Terry Components, 
which you just told us that, that you, you've sold and you're going to retire now, but you started that to solve a problem. You need to get more yeah. power to the starter to start the bigger motors. Well, not, you can't do, there. there's no cookbook to how to make a payroll. There's no cookbook to how to solve a problem. You've got to dig in and figure out how to do it. And um, if, if, if as some people, like I'll take myself, I couldn't run General Motors because I don't. I'm not schooled to do that. Right. But I could walk into an empty warehouse, and I don't see it that way. I see shelving and workbenches and airlines and and, and material flow. How it comes in one end and goes out the other, and it, uh, uh, that is something that guys that get the education. And, and move on. They can take, a, I can take a company from nothing, which I have several. Sure. Yes. From nothing to whatever I could take it to, and the and the guys that get the education could take a million dollar company to a hundred million, but they couldn't start it to save their life. I was to say they couldn't get to that million dollar mark. No. They know how to like. They know how to scale it beyond. Well, they that. don't know. They don't know what to do. Right. You well, sometimes they don't have the interpersonal skills, and I have to tell you that I don't think you learn interpersonal skills in a classroom as much as you learn interpersonal skills working next to somebody, whether it be a the guy, industri- a girl, the or anybody. In- the industrial arts programs, the wood shops, the print shops, the uh, auto shops, uh, metal shop, welding, all that stuff te- te- teaches you how that's your beginning of going into the, uh, tr- the trades. You know, the, uh, you can walk right out of high school and go to work at the RV park putting the trailer hitches on uh, tra- cars or vehicles or whatever or changing tires or oil. Uh, that gets you started, the entry level type stuff. Um, not everybody was cut out to be an attorney or a dentist or, and, and they, they're going to do fine. Yeah. But what, that's only 10% of the people. What, what about the other 90% of those kids that don't have those, those skills and, but have the interest? And, um, uh, but they just, got, they just need a break, and um, that's what we were doing with our uh, Were you able to work program. directly with the, with the students? Oh, yeah. So you got the, so I'm, I'm asking you this because I was a high school auto shop teacher for a while. Oh, there you go. So we had something that we called an aha moment where you see a kid that maybe doesn't, they lack the confidence, they lack the, the they don't come to the class with that knowledge, they, their, their father didn't, or mother or uncle or anything, didn't teach them how to use a wrench. And you see them, you, you see them have some success, some small successes, and they have that aha moment where the light comes on and, and they're just so full of fervor and energy and they want to see something come to fruition it's, it's really something that I don't know that you get that if you're only in a traditional sedentary classroom yeah they're you know all as you're as you're a young kid you really don't know what lies ahead and um, you know for me um, for example I wanted to play baseball more than I wanted to live I, I, that was the only thing that mattered to me. Um, and it was a, from when I was like six years old, I can't tell anybody what I want to do with because they say, oh yeah, that's great, yeah, sure. Yeah. 
you know. Everybody wants to be a baseball player. Yeah, Everybody that, wants to be a Brooklyn or a, a LA Dodger. Right. How, so I had to keep that to myself. But every day I was developing my skills. I was that kid that had this glove on his belt, and if somebody wanted to play catch, I'm I'm in. Right. And so, so it ends up for me when I was about 15. The Baltimore Orioles saw me, and and they they let me. Uh, they asked me if I'd throw batting practice to their number one uh, uh, draft pick, their first round draft pick. And I did, and um, it was big Mike, Ep uh, Mike Epstein that played, you know, your, for Baltimore and the uh, athletics. And what they, what he did is he came over and thanked me for coming out to throw batting practice to him. And then he said to me, "You're going to give me your best stuff, right?" And that was probably the turning point for me for everything because I said, pal, you aren't going to believe what you're getting yourself into. And you get stuff that you've never seen. I'm, I, this is war. This isn't any batting practice. And so after that, I knew that I could compete with those, that level at one time. That is an amazing thing for somebody that was your age to try to, to not only endure but to understand what had just happened because i don't think that a lot of people would understand that what that opportunity looked like and know how to oh. capitalize on it that's amazing well i mean everybody la times the everybody in the world was there to see this guy six foot six a left-handed hitter he was bigger than anybody in the world but uh for me i just said you know you're 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 in for it pal and he, ha he hit some off me that I think are still going. <laughs> but I threw some by him as well. And that told me that I, I could play here. That's an and important gave lesson. Gave me the drive. You know, I mean, because you could love the game, but you don't have, you know, you got to have blood in your eye. you gotta have, you got to want it worse than anything or you can't play at that level. You, same with the motorcycle. All these guys are, are, are friends. But there's a difference between Paul Yaffe and, the, and uh, Arlen Ness and uh, Dave Perowitz and Donnie Smith and Don Hotop. I mean, Don Hotop was one of the five best bike builders in the world. Um, I think Shadley's, uh, they, yeah, they the all Mark have... Mark Shadley, yeah. You know, they all have this special talent that is just a step of, uh, above and that's what it takes yeah and their and their and their work definitely shows it so you're known as the hardball hamster i appreciate you doing uh -huh. this with me uh, very no very problem. much it was a pleasure to Thank finally you. meet you and uh you know and i'm and i wish you very well and, and are you gonna retire or are you gonna keep going no, i'm gonna do stuff? some other stuff but i but I'm, now i have an opportunity to take a step back and see what i really want to do and get to go on a cruise and here we are <laughs> thank you very much thank you